Beloved, uh, this morning, if you would turn to First uh, Corinthians twelve, First Corinthians chapter twelve, we'll be looking at. Well, we're really only going to look at verses twelve and thirteen specifically, but uh, I'm going to read verses twelve to twenty-six. Allow me to pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you as a dependent people. I'm grateful, thankful for all you have granted us in Christ Jesus. I pray for this day of worship, for this hour and teaching, that you'll enable me to communicate your truth with clarity and bless your people who are gathered here early um, to sit under your word. May they be blessed and encouraged in a fresh new way. And and prepare, Lord, we also ask um, our members as they come in this morning for worship and throughout the county that they'd arrive safely, that you'll guard and protect them and prepare them, prepare us as a people to worship in spirit and truth in Christ's name. Amen. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say, to the hand I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another." If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Um, We've been looking at our heritage um, as a people of God over the last few weeks. That is, a people of God in Christ Jesus. Um, We've looked at our legacy throughout redemptive history, and we have been reminded um, that we have been, like as the people of God today, new covenant people of God, what Israel was always intended to be throughout time. Uh, The foreshadowing of, that is the anticipation of um, what one day would be the full expression of Um, of God's people, and that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to say we're not distinct um, from Israel, but we are the fulfillment of of what God 
has always promised that Israel would become. This we've tried to drive home the past few weeks. We are the fulfillment of, of what God promised to our forefathers. Um, that's why we can look at the, the whole counsel of God. We can look at the Bible and, and say uh, that, that this is the word of God for us. Um, over the weeks, we've heard many metaphors uh, as regards the people of God. Um, we've been likened to a bride, which defines for us um, intimacy and exclusivity. Um, she, the church, God's people, have been referred to as, as a priesthood, um, as living stones, as a temple, and that um, has to do with the unique presence of God. In John 10, we're referred to as a flock that follow our shepherd. In John 15, we're referred to as branches, um, likened to branches that are attached um, to the vine, and we share together um, life, that is, uh, by way of union with our Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard uh, familial language. Uh, we're, we're referred to as a household. We're referred to as, as a family. Um, of the living God. And we are uh, the community of faith together. Now, when Jesus died for his church, although he did have individuals in mind, no doubt about that, um, much more than that, as we read scripture, he, he's always had a people in mind. A people. Not isolated individual worshipers, but a people. And here... This morning, um, the church is likened to the body. And it's not to be divided. A body that is not to be at odds with itself. Notice verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now the context here. Uh, the church at Corinth was struggling uh, with a number of issues. And 1 Corinthians addresses many particular things that were dividing the church. Now, primarily, uh, the one thing that we're going to look at today, it had to do with spiritual gifts. Uh, some other things uh, were uh, food offered to idols. That was another issue. Another one was the resurrection itself. So Paul addresses all of these things, and he urged them over and over again to be unified, to be one, to not be divisive. See, they had selfishly turned inward. Focusing on expressing their individuality. Now, I remember a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at uh, one of the epidemics um, of our day that has infected the church, and that is, of course, individualism, which actually undermines the, the emphasis of God-centeredness in the church. It contradicts the work of God in the church. It calls us to serve one another, love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another in the scriptures. Encourage one another in the word. So now all of those things cut against the grain of, of individuality. 
Solitary Christianity is not Christianity. Matter of fact, uh, John Wesley once said that there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. Now, these kinds, the, the, the solitary Christian, those, those kinds of folks, uh, they're, they're easy to identify um, over time because they carry themselves in a way that, that keeps them at arm's length from life in the church, from commitment to a local church, from accountability to membership in a local church. and submission to eldership in the local church. They're resistant, so they, they stay at a distance. And although they may read their Bible every day, and although they may listen to Christian radio every day, and although they may download sermons of famous preachers every day, over time, it's inevitable that a, cer- a certain arrogance develops that is not difficult to miss. And this condescending attitude um, towards the church also develops. I've met these people. I told you about one a few weeks ago who who came in here. And some of them, they they never attend anywhere. And they typically become very strange as regards uh, their, their ideologies. There's some of those. Um, others just roll from place to place. I'm thinking themselves to be um, spiritual eccentrics. Um, in both these kinds, both groups of people, they, they keep a distance from the community of faith, the family of God, and they do not participate in the communion of the saints. Um, they oftentimes develop an inflated head while at the same time cultivate a very shriveled heart. Very dangerous. And although they may speak piously and with Christian ease and all that, um, they're not willing to sacrifice for the community of the saints. They're not willing to spill their blood if required for the community of faith. This is a place you never want to be. They're not willing to be committed to the bad times as well as the good. They, they, they think of themselves like, a, like floating cabanas. But in heaven, you don't see like individuals in heaven. You know, in the book of Revelation, uh, now and again, every time uh, uh, the Lord peels back the curtain or pulls it back a little bit and we get a glimpse into heaven, what do we see? A people together, and it's, it seems very loud, Right? Loud praise of a people together in heaven. You don't see little individuals isolated up there. This is what we see. It's always a group of people. Now, until then, when our worship will be perfect, until then, we're called to serve together in community, not individually. This is very important to the Lord. Therefore, it ought to be very important To us. Amen? Obviously, I'm speaking to the choir. One day I might preach this text in a church where floaters show up on that day. See, the church is the 
body of Christ. It's the body of Christ, over whom Christ is head. He's the head of his church. We're his body, and the body is dependent upon the head. And the body, a body, exemplifies growth and development. So here, Paul uses the physical body to illustrate unity amidst diversity. Unity amidst diversity within Christ's church. Now, as you know, most people groups, most cultures have some sort of, of utopian dream. Amen? Where, you know, all the world gets together and hoping and striving for, you know, universal peace and harmony. Right? Remember John Lennon's song, Imagine. Right? Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell below. Imagine all the people sharing in all the world. It's easy if you try. No, it's not. It's not easy if you try. Because we live in a fallen race. Amen? And because we're fallen, we're divided along racial, socioeconomic, political, and theological lines. That's reality because of sin. Because of human sin, the only way unity, therefore, can be obtained is through force, agree or else, or through coercion or deception of, say, false religion or some political ideology, or through a superficial kind of unity, like kumbaya, the let's join hands herd mentality. So the bad news is there, there will be no earthly utopia this side of Christ's second advent. That's his second coming. That's the bad news. The good news is that God provides us with true unity. God provides this. Man can't come up with this. God provides true unity based on our common faith and our trust in the head of the church. It's all realized in Christ Jesus through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And while this unity is imperfectly realized in this life, nevertheless, in Christ's church, God takes a whole host of diverse individuals, he calls them to himself, and then he puts them together as one. This is his work. Therefore, this kind of unity is possible only as regards um, his church where the Holy Spirit dwells, as he dwells within those individuals that he's made one, his body. Now, notice here, Paul, that being said, Paul does not conceive of the church as a democracy. Okay? He doesn't see the church as a democracy, nor will he tolerate anarchy. The Apostle Paul. Because the church, as the body of Christ, it's his body, and therefore it is he alone who adds diverse members to that body. Diverse individuals. He adds them to the body. So this explains to us why dividing the body of Jesus Christ or being divisive within the body of Christ 
is a great sin and a very dangerous one. Now, this is something the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, learned the day that he was born again. Okay, the day of his conversion is when he learned this. You remember in Acts, we read, Saul of Tarsus was en route to Damascus, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And while he's en route, a light from heaven flashed around him, we read. He, he falls to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are, you, why are you persecuting them. He said, why are you persecuting me? That is, his people, his body, are inextricably connected to him. So to persecute the body of Christ is to persecute the person of Jesus Christ himself. So says Jesus. See, this is why we do not mess with the church. Do not mess with the church. This is why, as members of the church, we must refrain, okay? We must refrain from anything that would arouse divisiveness within the church. The temptation will come. Don't bite. That is why to these kinds of divisive people, Paul said back in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians or chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You see, people, right here he says, people who create conflict in the church will find God to be his enemy. That's what he says. Keep that in mind. If you're ever quick to pick up the phone and harp about the church. Keep that in mind when you feel you've earned the right to to spout off about whatever or whoever. Amen? You want to take this and you want to pass this on. And that's not even going on in our church. If it ever does, pass it on. Okay? Pass this on. In Titus 3, Paul wrote this. For as a person who stirs up division, okay, remember, division, a lot of division was going on at the church of Corinth. In Titus, he writes, which is a pastoral epistle, for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. And again, this is because Christ's body is made up of many parts for a particular purpose. All right? So let's go back and let's look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13. For in one spirit, We were all baptized into what? One body. 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, I want you to notice verse 13. There's three lines there, three lines. Notice, first line, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's line one. Line two, Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. Line three, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, now, lines one and three serve as a parallelism. Lines one and three are a parallelism, and they're there, two lines, seeking to state the same idea in different ways. Okay, line one and line three. And the middle line is a kind of parenthetical statement to to express the full extent of what he means in lines one and three. Are you with me? Okay. Notice, we were all baptized, line one. All were made to drink of one spirit, line three. Now, the, the, the all is extensive. Notice it includes Jews and Greeks, line two. Slaves and free. Notice, it's diversity gathered in for the sake of what? Unity. Diversity gathered in for the sake of unity. Notice, baptized in one spirit. Friends, he's not talking about water here. There's not one drop of water in that text. And some of my dear brethren who are pedo baptists who believe in infant baptism, and some Lutheran brothers that, that I know and have read, um, they'll always bring up our baptism in water there. It's not talking about that. If you remember in the Old Testament, the Old Testament promised a coming day when, when God would establish a new covenant with his people. Amen? A new covenant with his people. And this, the central features of which, of that new covenant, was this. I will put my spirit where? Within them. Within them. You read this in Ezekiel 36. You read this in Joel 2. It's implied in Jeremiah 31. So there you have these Old Testament promises. And then John the Baptist comes out preaching. What did he come preaching? Mark 1, look at it, verse 7. He preached, saying, After me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, he what? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who's the baptizer? Jesus, not the Holy Spirit who baptizes. It's Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the head of the body. He's the head of many members. He is, Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. The one baptized is the believer. Individuals who become members of one body over whom he is head. So the Holy Spirit takes residence within us on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Peter preached at Pentecost. Amen? They were wondering, what's going on? And this is what he preached. Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and 
Of that we shall, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is his work. Now, the Corinthians have become arrogant. They become divisive. Divisive. So Paul here establishes his basis for unity right here. Jesus baptized, he said, each and every one of you in the Holy Spirit. Each of you, Corinthian church people, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And notice, notice here when, when it occurred. It occurred in the past. Look at the text. In one spirit, we were, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. All were made to drink of one spirit. That is to say, this occurred at salvation. This occurred at regeneration. This is not in addition to salvation, friends, as uh, many charismatic circles will teach. This is not in addition to salvation. This occurred at salvation. Any additional experiences of the Holy Spirit, that is another subject. Altogether, another subject. Here, Paul is saying, all believers experience this at the point of salvation. It's not that you become a believer and then later on receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, you became a believer here, and then six months down the road, you were baptized in the Spirit. No. Right here, we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one Spirit on the day of salvation. For what purpose? What's the aim? What's the goal? What's the purpose, Paul writes, in receiving the Holy Spirit? And it's that we become what? One body. One body. Verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. You know, in the book of Acts, when when people are converted, we read that they were added to the church. They were added to to the number, Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. He saves, baptizes them with the Spirit, they're added to the church. They're added to his body. They're one. Baptized by the head, added to the body. Christ is our head, so we're united according to God. Therefore, we must see ourselves as members of one body. That's why divisiveness is is dangerous. This is the communion of saints that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, amen? I believe in the communion of the saints. Because we all share the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. You got many parts, one body. And in this context that Paul's writing here, right here, that unity here, this context, is speaking of spiritual gifts. That's what, he, that's what he's at right here in this text. 
gifts that have been given to individuals to be exercised on behalf of the whole. Your gifts, guess what? I said it before. Your gifts are not for you. Your gifts, according to God's grace, are for the sake of serving one another. They perverted it. They turned inward. And to them, it became, it became a means of self-gratification. Division. So Paul rebukes them. That's why he opens up in verse 1. Notice verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Okay, I do not want you to be under, uh, unaware. In other words, Paul basically is saying this. Look, I, I, understand, I understand that you're having all kinds of experiences there, Corinth. Okay? I understand you're having all kinds of experiences, but I'm here to inform you that your experiences are not grounded in the truth. Your experiences are actually characterized by ignorance, by what you do not know. So let me, Paul says, inform you. Masterful, isn't it? And then he goes on to proceed. He, he proceeds to talk about the wide variety of gifts. Look at verse 4. Now there are, are a variety of gifts. Notice, but the same what? Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What do we see there? Diversity. Diversity. In all of which, he says, have the same source, that is the same Holy Spirit, the same Lord, implying unity. Diversity. Unity. Unity amidst diversity. God's plan. So while there's one Lord, Jesus, there's one Holy Spirit, there are many spiritual gifts given to those within the body of Christ. That's what he says. So each Christian here with a particular spiritual gift, he says, plays a vital role in the building up of the body of Christ. If you turn inward, and it's a self-gratification kind of thing, it's trouble for the church, as it was for these folks. So these gifts, they're given for the common good. He, he's very 
clear, and he, he puts, he, he is, that's why he puts it as he does in verses 4 through 11. So just as each organ of the body, each member of the body, the hand, the arm, the legs, the feet, inner organs that we cannot see, they all serve a particular function. That's the illustration he uses. <clears throat> and each Christian, therefore, has a call, and that call, whatever it is, is it's indispensable to the health of the church. So let's jump forward. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No. You know, public leaders are important to the body. Public leaders, those in the front, are important to the body of Christ, but they are no more important than those who work behind the scenes. Those caring for babies in the nursery. Right now. Do do we have folks there in the nursery right now? Yeah, right now. And during the service. They are as important to the whole as what I'm doing right here, right now. Amen? Cleaning the sanctuary. Cleaning the bathrooms. Whatever you do. Making meals for new mothers making meals for sick people or any other task, even if it seems, you know, uninspiring. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Your liver is very important. But you notice it's not on the outside. Because that wouldn't be good to look at. Without it, you're dead. Your heart, without it, pumping blood, you're dead. It's of vital importance. no less honorable. We bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. He's masterful, isn't he? That is to say, our gifts, our talents, whatever they may be, are all necessary for a well-functioning church, a healthy body. Very important. Now, someone may ask you, or maybe you ask this question, how do I know what my gifts are? And someday, some new Christian will ask you, I I don't know what my gifts are, How, how can I know? Well, let me tell you this, it's not a matter of filling out one of those spiritual gift tests, and then you just go sign the volunteer list. You've seen those? It's not that complicated. I used to laugh at those. 
Some, it's just hysterical, some of these questions. The answer is simple. Question, what are you good at doing and what do you like doing? Okay? Okay, what am I good at? What do I like doing? And although these gifts, whatever they may, may be, come from the Holy Spirit so as to serve the church, there's nothing you know, indicated when we read Scripture. There's nothing in the text that would teach us or cause us to think that someone who, say, is terrified to speak in front of people and just freezes up is all of a sudden going to be called to preach the gospel. Now, have there been people who used to be afraid to speak in front of people and all of a sudden they're given power not to be? Of course. But it's not normative is what we're after here. Someone who isn't comfortable around children, it's not likely that they're all of a sudden going to feel called to be the Sunday school superintendent. Children frighten them. It's unlikely. The point is, if, if you feel a desire to, to serve Christ's church in some particular area, you know, it's the inward call part, then step out by faith and, and do it. Okay? And then see if you enjoy doing it See if you end up doing it well. So then you'll sense that's the external call. So there's the inward call. There's the external call. And by stepping out and doing it, your, your gifts are made manifest. People see it. They appreciate it. And you say, oh, this is where I'm gifted. This is where I should serve. It may be behind the scenes. It may not be. That's really how you know if you have a particular gift. People, are, are all Christians equally evangelistic? Able to just break down the gospel like that? No, of course not. They have a desire to do that. They, they do that. They polish their gift as they exercise the gift, as, as they study and as they grow and as they're sanctified. And it gets easier and easier. It's not that there'll be any less battles in the midst of it. It's just that this is what they're gifted to do. They've exercised this gift. It was an inward desire. And outwardly, externally, they exercised it and they've grown in it. Not everyone has it. So as I'm thinking about this, my question is, is Pacific Hope a body that is a picture of unity Amidst diversity. Is Pacific Hope Church a body that exhibits unity amidst diversity? Um, and, the, and the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work is, is obvious when we think about this in biblical categories. Number one, when these people gather, okay, is the gospel preached? And do the people who gather love to hear God's word proclaimed? The first question. Second question, do people long to see sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ? Do people here at Pacific Hope Church long to see sinners, unbelievers, come to faith in Jesus Christ? Do they love the word? Do they love sitting under the word together with God's people? Do people care for one another in time of need? Hmm? No. No. 
These are questions that answer themselves. Do they bear one another's burdens? Do they pray for one another? Do they encourage one another? Will they call one another? Will they, I don't know, send cards or emails? I'm praying for you. I'm here to encourage you. Here's a meal for you. Things like that. And here's the big one. Do they do these things without seeking to call attention to themselves? If these things are present in the church, I think we can be sure that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are being used to build up His body. His body. For the common good of one another and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as I wrote these out, all I could do, each line, not trick questions, they were questions that, that caused me to thank the Lord for you all. Oh, amen, and it's a big amen. So this text, you know, we've had division in this church before. And it didn't pan out very well for those who cause division as you follow them down the years. It's a dangerous thing. But this body as a whole is very unified, very healthy. They, they see themselves as part of the body, as a member that makes up the whole. So as I look at and I answer, ask all these questions, the answer is yes. Gospels preached, they love to hear it. Uh, they, do they long to see sinners come to faith? Yes. Do, do people care for one another in time of need? Yes. Do they bear one another's burdens? Yes. Do they pray for one another? Yes. Do they exhort and encourage one another? Yes. And do they do these things without seeking to call attention to themselves? Apparently so. Don't know everyone's heart, but apparently so. Isn't that great? It's great. So then, do the investments of our affections reflect this? Do the investments of our time reflect this? Do the investments of our efforts reflect this? Do the investments, here's the one everyone loves, of our money reflect this? So as I did this study um, this week, because I I wanted to, as we're doing the church and how she's to serve and so on, um, I wanted to do this this text because it's a very text that we're all very most of us are very familiar with, and then to be so encouraged um, as you go through this when you look at the, the church that you're part of or the church that I serve at, blessed above measure, blessed above measure. So you never want to pass over this and just say, "Oh yeah, we don't need this because we're all good." Amen. Never should we do that. That's when we'll trip and stumble. So, as the body of Christ, may we rejoice that we've been called to faith by our Lord Jesus Christ. He has baptized us with the Holy Spirit. We are members, individual members that, that are part of one body. He's called us in. He's called us out. He calls us in. And he, he now is forming us together as his body. <clears throat> and we're able to serve for the common good of one another for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? So... That being said, I thank you all. 
um, for, for all that you do in, in having this spirit. But may we not uh, take it for granted. Amen? And amen.